0: Good morning, church. Can everyone hear me? Okay. I'm uh, Pastor Michael. Let me adjust my stand. Um, We're doing a sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy. And in our text, we're right on the cusp of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are actually given to us twice in the Bible, first in Exodus chapter 20, and then again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And before he, uh, Moses gives the people the Ten Commandments once again, he takes them back to the original setting, back to Mount Sinai. And he reminds the people that when they were at Mount Sinai, They could not just waltz into the presence of God, but they needed a mediator. And when you understand why they needed a mediator, when you understand the reason and and the purpose of a mediator, you will understand the gospel, because this goes to the very heart of Christianity. And so with that in mind, let's read our text. It's in the bulletin. We're going to actually start from chapter four, verses uh, starting in verse forty-four. Um, this first paragraph, let me sort of set it up for you. Moses is recounting; he's reciting the territories that had been conquered from these two Canaanite kings. Um, y- you might remember this; we went into it at length uh, in Deuteronomy chapter two and chapter three. These are the territories that were given to the uh, tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. And the the point here is that to remind the people uh, of the faithfulness of God. This is the first installment of the Promised Land, the lands east of the Jordan. Um, Like every good preacher, Moses repeats himself. So let's read this first paragraph again. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules, um, and in the very next passage, he cites the Ten Commandments, which is, which is really a, a summary of the law, but the full length, the, uh, all the nitty-gritty details of the law, we're going to dive into starting in Deuteronomy chapter 12 all the way through chapter 34. I really look forward to, to getting into that, but we're still in the lead-up to it. Which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan, right, east of the Jordan River, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, that's the first king, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, that's the second king, the two kings of the Amorites who lived to the east beyond the Jordan from Uroar, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, that's to the north, together with all, um, with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arabah under the slopes of Pisgah, that's in the south. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them. And be careful to do them, right? That's in many ways the whole point of Deuteronomy. We're going to learn to do and be careful to observe the law. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai. It's actually the preferred name in Deuteronomy. Verse 3. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. That might confuse it a, a little bit because... He's speaking now to the second generation. Uh, the first generation had been at Mount Sinai, but he's talking about the immediacy of the moment, not the far distant ancestors. Verse 4. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into The mountain. This is the word of God. Excuse me while I clean my glasses. Alright. So, I have three points. Here's my outline. Number one, we're going to look at Moses as the mediator. Number two, we're going to look at the work of a mediator. And then finally, we're going to see the ultimate mediator. So, number one, Moses as the mediator. So, in our text, Moses goes back to the story of Israel at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, the people meet God face to face. And that encounter almost destroys them. They fall apart with terror because the presence of God is unbearable. And you see that very clearly in verses 4 and 5. We're actually going to spend our entire time on just these two verses. Let me read it to you again. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain." And so the text tells us that when God came upon the mountain, He came in fire. Now, what is this fire? This is what theologians call a theophany. What is a theophany? A theophany is really just two words. Uh, It's the Greek word theos, which means God, and the Greek word uh, phanin, or phania, which means to show So, theophany is the showing of God, the visible representation of the invisible God. And the most common theophany, the most frequent theophany in the Bible, is fire. You'll remember that when God spoke to Moses, He spoke to him from out of the burning bush. Or when God came to Abraham in a vision it was as a uh, smoking pot and a flaming torch. Or remember, when God led Israel through the wilderness, it was by a pillar of fire. And here, once again, when God comes down on Mount Sinai, the entire mountain is set aflame. Now, our text here in Deuteronomy, I think, really doesn't do the, um, the story justice because it's really the story in summary form. But I think it's worthwhile to go back to the original text in Exodus 19. Let me just read to you Exodus 19 verses 16 and 18. Listen to this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. That's the sound of war. So that all the people in the camp trembled. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a furnace, just billowing. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. So the text tells us that it was not just fire, as terrifying as that is. But it was this whole array of, I guess, what we would call extreme weather events. Lightning strikes, thunder clouds, earthquakes. And so what is all of this telling us? It is telling us the presence of God is dangerous. And, you know, this is a little bit hard for us who live in cities all of our lives to appreciate these natural phenomenons. But, you know, imagine being out in a, th- in, a, in a lightning storm or imagine being enveloped in wildfire, right? Just try to picture it in your mind. It would be a terrifying experience. But here on Mount Sinai, all of these phenomenons are stacked one on top of another, And they're all telling the people this unmistakable message. Your life is in danger. Do not come near. Why? Because a sinful people cannot bear the presence of a holy God. That's why. In Isaiah chapter 6, there's this passage where the prophet is taken up in a vision, into the heavenly throne room of God. And he sees God in all of his splendor and majesty. And he sees the seraphim with their angelic wings crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the text tells us that Isaiah just crumbles. He he collapses. This is one of the greatest prophets in all of the Bible. This is one of the most devoted, one of the holiest men in all of Israel, but in the presence of the absolute holiness of God, he cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost. And then he says this, listen, he says, For I am a man of unclean lips. That's really significant, because you have, he's not just picking some arbitrary body part. You have to remember that as a prophet, He spoke, he taught the word of God and prophesied so that his lips were the very instrument of his righteousness. But in the presence of God, he says, my own lips are foul and vile. Let me pause for the plane. Or consider Revelation 6. Revelation 6 is a very um, vivid, poignant passage. And there it says that the kings of the earth are facing the day of judgment. And the text tells us that on that day, they will cry out to the rocks and they will cry out to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. Do you hear what this text is saying? They would rather be crushed by rocks and boulders than face the perfect holiness of God. And so that's what was happening to the people at Mount Sinai. It felt like, like every molecule in their body was disintegrating. It felt like they were being ripped apart atom by atom. And so the people respond. And let me read to you in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Listen to this. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, because remember the entire mountain is on fire, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And so they call for Moses to stand between them and the Lord as the mediator. And that leads me to the second point, the work of a mediator. So what is a mediator? Now, this is a word we don't actually see in the Old Testament, although the concept is definitely there. But we do see it with some regularity in the New Testament. Uh, so, for example, a very um, well-known passage, 1 Timothy two five: For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Je- the man Christ Jesus. Now, the Greek word for mediated, mediator there. Uh, remember that the New Testament is written in Greek. Uh, the Greek word is uh, mesites. Mesites is um, where we get the English prefix meso, which means middle, like you know, Mesoamerica. Mesites literally means man in the middle. It's the person who stands between two parties who are in conflict. And so a mediator is a go-between. Right, He goes back and forth communicating with both sides, negotiating the peace. We see that in our text. In verse 5, Moses says, I stood between the Lord and you. And so that's the role of a mediator. Moses stands in the middle between God and Israel. Now, Let's do a bit of analysis here, right? And let's ask a very basic question, which is, why would you need a a mediator in the first place? Because you only need a mediator when you are in conflict, right? You don't need a mediator when everything is fine. You know, if, if one day your spouse comes to you, or if one day your colleague or business partner says, listen, you and I, we need a mediator, That lets you know there's something very wrong with the relationship. And so the fact that Moses is the mediator tells us that there is something wrong with the relationship between God and man. And so let's break this down. And there are two parts to this, because remember, there are two parties in the conflict. There is, on the one side, God's quarrel, God's problem with with us, with humanity— And then on the other side, there is humanity. There is our problem, our quarrel with God. So let's take them one at a time. First, God's problem with us. And God's problem with us is very simple. It's that we are sinners. In fact, the Bible says that God is angry with us because of our sin. And the best place to really understand this idea is this, God's posture to sin are the, are the early chapters of Romans. Let me just read to you um, two verses to give you a, a flavor of this. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, listen to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so the Apostle Paul tells us that God is angry because of our sin. God is angry. Now, modern people really don't like this. They hate this. Um, You know, we often picture God, he's up in heaven, he's stomping around, he's losing his temper sort of in this peevish rage because he has all of these fussy rules, you know? Don't look, don't touch, don't do this, don't do that. And he's rather neurotic about the rules, and when we break the rules, his anger let me let me pause if you could bear with me for the plane all right that's my second allowance um, and so when we break the rules, you know we imagine god he's His anger is disproportionate. It's cruel and vindictive. And it's really a strike against his character. But the Bible says that the wrath of God comes from his passionate commitment to justice. And because he is a righteous judge, he cannot turn a blind eye to evil and injustice. And so because he is good, because he is full of love, God will cleanse the earth of all wickedness. Listen to Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You know, right now, it seems like might makes right. It seems like we live in this lawless age where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. But the Bible says one day there will be a reckoning. One day God will settle all the accounts. And everything that is hidden, every reprehensible deed that was done in secret will be revealed in the light of day. And there will be justice. And if you are in touch with reality, if you are in touch with your own heart and motives, that is a terrifying thought. And on that day, we will cry out to the rocks and to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. So that's the first thing, God's problem with us. The second thing is our problem, our quarrel with God. And for many people, this is, a new idea. You know, a lot of people say, well, if God has a problem with me, that's his business, but I don't really have a problem with God. And a lot of people think of themselves as, you know, indifferent to God, or maybe they're not even sure that he exists. But when you become a Christian, you realize that what the Bible says is true, that you and I, we are enemies of God. Romans uh, 8, 9 says the sinful mind is hostile to God. And the reason why we are unsure about God, the reason why we're cold and indifferent to God is because ultimately we're angry with him. We don't trust him. We don't think he loves us. We don't think he's watching out for us. And because something happened in the past our trust in Him was destroyed. You know, There was a, a prayer that we fervently made that was unanswered. Maybe it was the death of somebody we love. Maybe it's some chronic illness that never went away. Maybe it's some, some deep disappointment in your life, in your career, or at school. And you've never forgiven God for it. You've never forgiven Him. But because we can't admit it to ourselves, because it's too traumatic, because it's too um, uncomfortable, we suppress it deep within ourselves, but we suffer for it. And we're controlled by it. This is why we live like orphans in this world, because we don't believe we have a Heavenly Father. We believe we're on our own. And so nobody can tell us what to do. We decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. And the Bible says, just call it what it is. You have enmity with God. You are at war with your Creator. And so there it is. This two-front war. On one side, you have the judgment of God against human sin. And on the other side, you have the hostility of man because we don't think God loves us. And so we are separated from God. Isaiah 59, verse 2 says, the prophet says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And therefore, therefore, we need a mediator. But I want you to understand, we don't just need a mediator at Mount Sinai. But I want you to understand that the whole Mosaic Covenant is this elaborate system of mediation, so that all of these rituals, all of the the pre everything the priest does, the animal sacrifices, the whole architecture of the tabernacle and then the temple, everything is mediated everything, so that you can never enter into the presence of God without there being these layers of separation without encountering all of these obstacles and barriers to entry. What is that telling us? You see, at the very heart of the temple is the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is the innermost chamber in the temple. It's a very strange room because no one is allowed into it. No one except the high priest. And then only once a year and then uh, on the day of Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement, and then only after going through these elaborate rituals of cleansings and, and sacrifices, and then they would tie a rope around him in case he was struck dead for his sins so they could drag his corpse out. See, the Holy of Holies, the Bible tells us, is the very presence of God. What is this telling us? You see, the Mosaic Covenant gives us all of these mediators. And Moses is the best and highest example of them. But all of these Mosaic rituals are telling us, in fact, they're screaming at us that the relationship is still broken. Imagine there's a married couple and they're going through an intense marital conflict. And they finally go and see a marriage counselor. And after years and years of therapy, the husband is still sleeping on the couch. And they have these very carefully negotiated rules about who can be in the kitchen at what time because they have to make sure that they are never in the same room together. What would you say about this married couple? You would say there's something deeply wrong this marriage is broken. They may live together. They may live in the same house, but they're not truly reconciled. The Mosaic Covenant is telling us, and it was designed to tell us from the beginning that Moses as the mediator is not enough. All the Mosaic rituals are not enough, but they are a type. They are a sign of the one to come. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 listen to this Jesus is worthy of greater honor than Moses this would have been astonishing to the Jewish people because Moses is the greatest leader par excellence but Jesus is is greater for Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future right he was faithful in his limited duties as a mediator, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. Christ is the ultimate mediator. And that leads me to my third point, the ultimate mediator. And I want you to know here that Jesus Christ is the true and ultimate mediator. And he is the true and ultimate mediator in two ways, in his identity and in his work. So let me go through them one at a time. First in his identity, you know every good mediator must identify with and be able to represent both sides in a conflict so for example, think about the um, the, the, the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians this long standing conflict and suppose that they finally appoint a mediator to negotiate a peace but it comes out that this mediator is an Israeli. He grew up all of his life in Israel. He identifies with the Jewish people. You could imagine the Palestinians protesting, saying, that's not right, he's biased. Or if it was the other way, if the mediator was Palestinian, the Israelis would object. But suppose instead that the mediator was a third party. He was Chinese. As far as I know, the Chinese have no dog in the fight. So would he be a good mediator? Well, he would be a neutral arbiter, right? He doesn't have a dog in the fight. He'd be able to fairly weigh the uh, the, the issues on both sides. But don't you see, he wouldn't be able to sympathize and understand issues going on in, bo- in both sides so that Better than a neutral mediator is somebody with a dual identity. So imagine this mediator, he has mixed parentage. His father is an Israeli, his mother is Palestinian. Even though he grows up in the Gaza Strip, he spends every summer going to yeshiva school in Tel Aviv. During the school year, he's educated in a madrasa in Gaza City. And uh, he speaks perfect Hebrew, perfect Arabic. He has friends on both sides. He's bilingual, bicultural. He can truly say to both sides, I understand you. I, I, I can represent you to the other side. Now, let's go back to the Bible. Moses is the mediator of the old covenant. But don't you see, ultimately, he failed. Because he's a mere man. And as a mere man, he also sinned against God. In fact, Hebrews 12 tells us that Moses also trembled at Mount Sinai. But the good news is that God has provided the perfect mediator in the new covenant. And this perfect mediator, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, he is the radiance radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I love the way the Nicene Creed puts it. He is very God a very God. And at the same time, he is fully human. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. You see, Jesus Christ is the only God man who is fully divine so that he could represent God to us and who is fully human so that he could sympathize with us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, listen to this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is the reason for the incarnation. You see, God had to come in human flesh. He had to, the mediator had to have a dual identity. Let me pause the third time for this plane. I guess people are traveling a lot more these days. Um, Let me wait. All right, so Jesus is the, is the perfect mediator in his identity, and he is the true and ultimate mediator in his work. Now, every good mediator must address the fundamental problem driving the conflict. The fundamental problem for God is the wickedness of human sin. The fundamental problem for humanity, we don't think God loves us. If Jesus is the one true mediator, he must address both problems. It's not enough to address only one of the problems. He has to address both problems and then there will be peace. How does he address both problems? Don't you understand? He does it by going to the cross. Because on the cross... Jesus makes atonement for sin. Hebrews 9.12, listen to this. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, on the cross, Christ paid for our sins and... At the same time, on the cross, Jesus shows us the love of God. Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, on the cross, Jesus says, this is how much I love you. And then he stretched out his arms and they nailed him to a cross. Do you understand the absolute brilliance of the cross. Because simultaneously, in one act, in one act, Jesus makes the peace. He satisfies the wrath and the judgment of God through his substitutionary death. And he demonstrates the love and the mercy of God by laying down his life for us. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit to communicate that love to our hearts. That's the gospel. The gospel is the peace of God through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2:13. Listen to this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, remember the people could not even touch the touch Mount Sinai because of their sins you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. That's the gospel. Do you remember in the, uh, in the gospel narrative when Jesus died and every single one of the synoptic gospels records this exact detail. That when Jesus perished on the cross, it says the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the curtain um, separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. What does that mean? Don't you understand? The fact that the, the curtain was ripped in two shows us the way back to God has been opened. We now have access to God through Jesus Christ. I want to close by reading to you from Hebrews chapter 12. Um, I've been quoting a lot from Hebrews. Hebrews in many ways is an extended commentary on the Mosaic Covenant. I'm just going to close. No commentary. I'm just going to read to you verses 18 through 24. Listen to this. Listen to the words. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a storm, and the sound of a trumpet, right? He's talking about Mount Sinai. And a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the word that was spoken to them. If even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in joyful assembly and to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, that's his blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, how great a salvation we have in Jesus Christ that there was this unbreachable chasm Between you and us because of our sin. But you made the bridge. You traversed the chasm through your Son in the cross. And now you give us the Spirit that we might be reconciled with you and we might know your love and your care for us. We pray that this gospel truth would impress upon our hearts. We're so cold, we're so indifferent to you. Because we don't know that there's peace. We think there's still a war. Lord, let us know that there is now peace in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.